message this morning, I want to start out by uh, pointing out something that might be obvious to many of you here, but um, I am in fact uh, white. Um, if you don't believe me, just, you know, uh, check out the farmer's stand. Um, but for those of you that don't know, uh, my lovely wife is not. She is of uh, Mexican descent, she's Latina. Um, and that occasionally has led to cultural differences and, and disagreements. Um, but none probably more obvious than the cultural difference when we were getting ready for a wedding. And in my mind, about 100 people is, is a pretty big wedding. And we were getting ready to uh, make up our, our invitation list and I brought literally every family member I've ever met and it was probably about 50 people. We put together a list of friends, both from college and from back home, so maybe about 75 people. And we ended up with a wedding invitation list of about 300. The remaining 175 to 200 or so was Sani's family. About 200 to 250 of which showed up to the wedding. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but feeding and um, let's just say hydrating uh, 200 plus people is not cheap. And so we started our married life together with over $10,000 of debt on day one just from paying for a wedding. And I'm sure many of you out there have also felt the weight of debt at some point in your life, right? It's not fun. Maybe it was a medical debt, right? Maybe you had an emergency, either you didn't have insurance or your insurance just decided they weren't gonna pay for it that day. And you got a bill and you spent years and years repaying that. Or maybe it was student loans. We've all heard the horror stories of some of the student loans that people have been paying for 30 years and still hasn't gone down at all. They've only paid interest. Or maybe it was when you first signed your mortgage. I remember that day when you signed the first paper and then the second and then the third and then the 52nd and the 78th. But when you get to that one where it says like, you know, this $150,000 house is actually going to cost you like $400,000 before you finally pay it off and you're like, <coughs> Right? You have felt the weight of that debt. Well, this story here is about the weight of a debt that is beyond any of our imaginings. So please join with me as we go to our prayer to our Lord this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive your message. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us your word to guide us Lord, that you've brought us together as a community here to worship you together, to learn of you from one another. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, Lord, that we would love one another and encourage one another and strengthen one another as iron sharpens iron. Lord, above all that, that we would forgive one another in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story is probably familiar to many of you. Um, and I've always thought of these two passages as being kind of separate. Because when you're in, in Sunday school, you often hear about the question to Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? And then you hear about this parable of the unforgiving servant. But I'd never really fully connected them in their mind. Um, and so you've heard all these stories about, well, is it 77 or 7 times 7? And what does 7 mean? And what is 10? And, how... and there's probably some truth to all that. But it's... I don't think it's really necessary because I think the real answer to Peter's question is the parable. 
Right? He starts the parable with therefore. He's connecting it to what comes before. And this story is so familiar with us that I think sometimes we miss just how completely ridiculous and absurd it actually is. So the quantities of money involved here requires a little bit of math, but um, a talent, which is what the first, the amount of money that the first servant owes, is approximately 6,000 denarii. And a denarii is about what a worker would make in one day. So uh, in El Paso, maybe roughly one to $200 for an average laborer, probably closer to one for a day laborer, right? Um, but one talent then, if it's 6,000 days wages, is over 20 years worth of wages. That's, that, that's one talent, right? So one talent, if we think forty-five, fifty $50,000 a year, one talent would be about a million dollars. One talent. This servant here owes 10,000 talents. That's $10 billion. With a B, billion, not million, billion dollars. Let's go back and read this story again here, substituting the word 10,000 talents with $10 billion and see if it hits you a little differently. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him $10 billion. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. Sounds a little different, doesn't it? Right? And if you're sitting there, you're thinking, right, like, how does a servant even rack up $10 billion in debt? And how is it that the king's just sitting there like, oh, let me balance my checkbook. Oh, I'm missing $10 billion and I didn't realize it. Right? Like, this is absurd. And I think that's Jesus' point here, right? Our debt is absurd. It's completely unpayable. He's like, oh, we'll send him to jail and sell him off and sell off his family and... Like what, that's going to generate a couple thousand dollars? It's not going to come close to $10 billion, right? This is 20 years labor times 10,000. This is, what, 2 million years labor? That is debt is? Like, I mean, you can go from the beginning of the Bible till now, we're not even close to 2 million years. This debt is completely and utterly unpayable. And I realize that pretty much every time I've come to talk to you, I've talked about depravity and how sinful you guys are, and I'm sorry. Um, and you guys are going to start to get to the point where it's like, oh great, it's Jesse again, he's going to tell me how bad I am. Um, but in my defense, it's not me. <laughs> it's Jesus. <laughs> um, but yes, sorry, you're really bad. Your debt is huge. It's unfathomable. Unless Elon Musk is sitting out here, none of us will ever have any concept of how much money $10 billion is. Like, I can't even fathom a million dollars. Right? Let alone 10 million, 10 billion dollars. What you owe God is completely and utterly unpayable on your own account. And this is his answer to Peter's question. Peter comes up and is like, well, how many times do I have to forgive? This guy keeps annoying me. He keeps bothering me. 
How many times do I have to forgive him? And Jesus is saying, the only way you can ask that question is because you've forgotten the debt you owe. You've forgotten how big the debt is that you owe God if you can turn around and even think to ask about how many times I should forgive somebody else. It shows a heart that is focused on his own self and his gain and not on what he's been forgiven. But I think there's another perspective here that I also want to get out as we go through the, the story. And that is, we often only look at the second servant's debt in relation to the first servant's, right? And we think about like, well, compared to $10 billion, that guy owed nothing and he had him thrown in jail and he did all... But if you actually look at it, the fellow servant owed him 100 denarii. We said a denarii is one day's labor. The second servant owes him about ten dollars to $15,000. If you remember back to the story at the beginning, that crushing weight that I felt was $10,000. That's not nothing. That's not cheap. Yeah, in perspective to the $10 billion, but for everyday life, $10,000 hurts. And I think, and I appreciate that the, the debt here isn't a penny. It, caught, it would have cost something for the servant to forgive the other servant. And when we live in communion and in community with each other, and somebody you love and somebody you know hurts you, it costs something to forgive them. And so I don't want to stand up here and make light of that, right? It hurts. When you forgive somebody, you're saying, all that pain you caused me, I'm not going to put it back on you. I'm going to bear it myself. I'm going to take it to God, but it's going to hurt and it's going to cost me, especially when that person is somebody close to you, when it's a brother and sister in Christ, when it's a spouse, when it's a child, when it's a parent. Forgiveness is not cheap. It is not easy. It hurts. It costs. And the only way we can be motivated to do that is when we remember back the first debt. Not to minimize the $10,000, not to say it's not going to hurt, but to look for strength at our example. Our example is Jesus. And he forgave us a debt of $10 billion. If that's your perspective, then I can say, yes, this $10,000 hurts. It costs me something but I'm still going to forgive. At the end of the story, though, there's a passage here that's a little difficult, but it's, it's not unique. Right? If you skip down to verse 34 and 35, it says, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which, if you recall, was $10 billion. In other words, he's sending him to jail forever. He's never going to pay that. But here's the difficult part. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this is not unique. If you look throughout the New Testament, you're going to see a lot of passages that equate our forgiving others with our unforgiveness. Matthew eleven twenty five, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father 
also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Or Luke 6, 36-38 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Or Colossians 3.12-14 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate ones, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against you, another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Or most famously, Matthew 6, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And sometimes we stop there, but the next verse says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You can see this time and time again, that our forgiveness is linked to our being forgiven. So, I was just teaching the communicants class, and one of the big questions we said, right? Salvation is by blank alone. Anybody want to fill in the blank? Faith alone. So how do we reconcile this command that you have to forgive in order to be forgiven, while we also say salvation is by faith alone? It's not by our words. It's not by what we do. So how do we reconcile all these passages I just read with Acts 16.31, for example, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or Ephesians 2.8 and 9, which is what we read with the kids this morning. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Or even John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So I think the way that we reconcile these two is whenever we run into problems, we always look at other scripture to interpret it. And one of the things that I think can be helpful here is the epistle of James. And James has sometimes gotten a bit of a bad rap. Um, Martin Luther is rumored to have ripped it out of his Bible for a while. We don't know whether or not that's true, but there's certainly been a rumor there. But what we do know is that he called it an epistle of straw, right? That he thought that it belonged in the Bible, but it was sort of, he had, he had this weird two-tiered view of, of the Bible, and James was sort of in a lower tier. It wasn't quite uh, fully inspired. It was, it was good reading, but it wasn't quite fully inspired. Um, and when you read through it, you can kind of sympathize with him a little bit. Um, remember, his fight was on this, justification, salvation, by faith alone. And when you look at James, you can see why it would cause him a little bit of consternation. So I'm going to read from James 2, 14 to 26. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled with the Spirit, without giving them the things they need for body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture is fulfilled that says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You see why Martin Luther didn't particularly care for that, right? And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I think the point that these passages make and that we sometimes miss is that we in our fallen idea pit faith and works against each other as if they're at war, right? But that's just because we have misunderstood. That's not a biblical narrative. The biblical narrative is, says that, yes, you are saved by faith, which is accompanied by works. The cliche is you're saved by faith that is alone, or, by, sorry, you're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. And I think that's often meant to refer to works that accompany the faith. But for me, a better way of understanding that is you're saved by faith that is not alone because your faith is accompanied by the Holy Spirit. Not just works. And the Holy Spirit's job is to sanctify you. It's to make you do better. It's to give you good works, to enable you to do the works of God's kingdom. And the Holy Spirit is really, really good at his job. If you have faith and you have the Holy Spirit, there will be evidence. There will be the fruit of the Spirit. There will be forgiveness. So are you saved by faith alone? Yes but you're saved by faith alone, and then you get the Holy Spirit. And so if you have an unforgiving heart, it's time to first look at the cross, and second, pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to change your heart and conform you into the image of the Son and give you a heart that loves his people, a heart that forgives his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again.